1: Hey everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Gravity Leadership podcast. I am your host Ben Sternkey. I'm here with my co-host today, Christy Penley. Hi hey, Christy. Ben. Hey. You doing all right?
2: I
3: am. I'm like yeah. I'm like it snowed last night here in Colorado Springs. Wow. And That's today crazy. is a reading day for school for me. So uh-huh. I am just been sitting by the fire with a blanket and a book.
2: Which oh, everyone wow. else,
3: maybe listening to this, might be like, that sounds like a perfect day, but right. when you have a deadline for school...
1: Yeah, there's maybe a little bit more anxiety <laughs> built in than what yeah. you would typically Checking think about me by the fireplace. Yeah. Right, right. Well, good. Very good. It's uh, It's cold here in Indianapolis uh, today. Colder, Cold for mid-April. What is it? April, I guess the 16th when we're recording this. This will come out on the 20th. So it's cold here. Yeah. So... Anyway, we're still uh, kind of reeling here from uh the shootings. Uh yeah. we just that just as we're recording this, that uh happened overnight and we're just sort of hearing news about it and
3: there's been a lot in the news actually in the last few days. Oh my gosh, it been, really has, yeah. You know, every time I open up my phone, I'm like another story, another yeah. video, yeah. another shooting. Yeah. And um shooting
1: reporting of shootings keeps getting interrupted by reportings of other shootings. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's really yeah. It's really, uh, I don't know. I guess I don't know what to say about it. It's just like there's so there's so much. I, I put in the curated links email this week that like it's just been reminder after reminder after reminder that we are not okay. Yes, <laughs> we are not doing well. You know Things what I mean? Are like not we,
3: as they should be.
1: Yeah, there we have a we have a sickness, and I I think the I don't know. I'll maybe just say this that I think what I'm learning. I'm trying to learn what it looks like for me to faithfully stay attentive mm. to these things without sort of getting uh, just, I feel like, uh, just wrapped up in it in the sense of just getting lost in the outrage yeah. uh, over some of these things and it, to, to my own sort of uh, the detriment right of um, my ability to, to actually do something productive with it. Um but then the other an uh, equal and opposite temptation I think is to just numb out um, to yeah. to stop paying attention, you know to just log off and to be you know whatever, however you do that you know yep. um, to just try to ignore it um, because it's too painful to look at and I think there's what I'm trying to lean into and learn is what it, what does it look like to pay attention and to react appropriately to these things and to uh, sustain in a like a resilient way to sustain my attention, so that I can, as an you know agent of of God's kingdom and, and resurrection life, to to adequately, I guess, uh, be present to these yeah. things and pray and grieve and and organize and protest and advocate, um, and but also proclaim good news uh, into these things and kind of uh, interact with them from a place of uh, joy, from a place of confidence in the resurrection. So
3: You know, uh, I reverted back to my junior high days, actually, because oh. I wrote, I don't know if you can see this, but I wrote a T on my hand, those listeners. Mm-hmm. I just took a pen. You know how you used to write on your hand when oh, you were yeah, like in junior yeah. high? I just wrote I a T that. on my hand as like... Yeah. I need to be reminded of the big T truth in the Mm. midst of all that's kind of going on in our world. And yes, be present to what's going on, but also Mm. kind of continually releasing it to the one who does bring hope, who does bring life, who is resurrected. And Mm. uh, yeah, I just revolted back to my 13-year-old self in that. In the yeah. midst of all
1: of this. yeah, well, that's great. I, I love that embodied kind of way of uh, bringing your attention back to those things. I'm also I'm preparing to preach this weekend. um this will be this past Sunday. and so I've been thinking a lot about how to incorporate this and how to proclaim good news uh, into this. And the passage that I'm preaching from is um, one of them is uh, Luke's account of the post-resurrection appearances where Jesus, invites it's similar to in john's account where he invites thomas to touch his wounds yeah um but he he says look look you know i'm flesh and blood touch my hands here's my hands and my, he shows them his hands and his feet uh, the the account says um and i i've just been uh i guess meditating on the fact that like we have a wounded god mm. and that his lordship is shown in his wounds and that he has taken the totality of human experience into himself yes. and he has taken that into the presence of God in his flesh. And so now everything is redeemed. Mm-hmm. Everything is taken into the presence of God. And so all then becomes, I'm still playing around with this and my sermon is not done, but all becomes communion. Like we can mm. enter into grief because it's communion with the God who grieves with us. We can enter into these wounds because it's communion with the God who was wounded for us um, and who redeems uh, all these things. And so we enter into these things trusting that this is communion with the God who has redeemed these things. Um, yeah. So anyway, That'll that's where preach, my sermon is going. Well, I hope so. It sounds like it's
3: done. Like, I think I'm just... just. (laughs) That's what people keep telling
1: me. They're like, you don't need to say anything else. Your sermon is two minutes long. That's it. Okay. So, we'll see. I'm actually hoping uh, to be able to preach a a 10 minutes or less sermon. So, um, anyway. good. Yes. Well, um, we have an episode recorded today, obviously, before all this stuff happened with Sheila Gregoire. Um, who is, uh, this is an interesting episode for us. I don't think we've ever uh, talked explicitly about sex no. on the Gravity Leadership Podcast, but we are going to today with Sheila Gregoire. And she has um, a couple books out that uh, we talked about. One is called To Love, Honor, and Vacuum. Or no, that's her website. Her, we- yeah, <laughs> her website, her website is kind website. of, yeah, it's called To Love, Honor, and Vacuum. And there's links to this in the show notes. Uh, and the book is called The Great Sex Rescue, the lies you've been taught, and how to recover what God intended, and show um, she's uh, kind of takes some, some of the stuff that we've been talking about in general with uh, women, like Beth Allison Barr. That episode where we talked about the, the ways that evangelicalism, in particular, and the, the Western Church has um, uh, the lies that we've been told about women and their place, and Sheila kind of takes that into the realm of uh, sex and yeah. talks about the lies that we've been taught about sex and um, maybe getting back to what God intended. Uh, for yeah, sex. and
3: she actually did a survey of like that's 20 right. yeah. over 20,000 women uh, mm-hmm. to get the you know the research for this book which is fascinating. Yeah. I mean it's, it's that's a yeah. big survey. Yeah. Um and a lot was learned and gained and and uh, uncovered I think in that. So yes. um yes. it's worth the read for sure and um yeah. this talking to her was really fascinating. She's she funny because she's like, she's really funny. I didn't think I'd be like someone who would talk about sex and here right. I am. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. She didn't set out to, to do this. And that that's oftentimes I think, uh, what makes for the most interesting interviews is people who sort of found themselves doing something that, you know, seems to be bringing life. So, yeah. So anyway, I think that's about it. I don't think we need to announce anything else. Um, As always, if you're interested in uh, Gravity Leadership Academy, hit us up, write us uh, us an email. Uh, We're always starting new cohorts. But other than that, I think we're ready to get into this interview. Anything else from you, Christy?
3: No, let's go listen. All right.
2: Sheila Gregoire, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast.
4: Well, great to be here. Thank you.
2: Sheila uh, is an author and a speaker. Uh, she Her website is tolovehonorandvacuum.com. She talks about marriage, sex, family, and faith. And she's written a new book co-authored with uh, num- uh, two women, including her daughter, called The Great Sex Rescue. Uh, what else we need to know about you, Sheila, before we jump into why sex needs to get rescued?
4: well I have been blogging about sex and marriage since 2008 on my blog I started off as like this mommy blogger and then when I started talking about sex my traffic went up like who knew people wanted to talk about sex you know so (laughs) I just got it no one grows up thinking you know what I really want to do I want to write about sex all the time no one does that (laughs) but that's kind of what I got into and uh Um, it's just, it's just been a wild ride, but as the more I've written about it, the more I've realized that there's just some basic foundational problems with the evangelical world's approach to it. And that's what we're trying to fix in our book.
2: Hmm. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. Before we get to the problems, uh, I want to Backtrack a little bit to the joke you made about like, you know, every six-year-old girl's like, someday when I hit puberty, then I can write about sex. Like, that's not really happening to most of us or, or guys either. So I, how did you find yourself writing about it? And then why did you continue?
4: Whenever people hear that you're an expert, so to speak, in an area, they assume that you must do that area really well. And (laughs) I always like to tell people this was the worst part of our marriage for the first few years, because if you don't have any problems, then you have nothing to learn and you have to struggle through something, I think, for God to show you stuff. And so my husband and I did struggle a lot in this area, but we also started speaking at marriage conferences about probably 12, 13 years into our marriage. And we always got given the sex talk because my husband's a pediatrician. So he's a doctor. He'll talk about anything. I don't care. I'll talk about anything. And no one else wanted to talk about sex. So wherever we spoke, we always had to do the sex thing. And we kind of got known for that. It was just, it was one of those weird things. And I'm in Canada. That's why my accent's funny. So um, some Canadian shows had me Mm -hmm. on to talk about it. I got asked by Canadian magazines to write about it. And I got slotted in this niche without ever intending to be here.
2: Wow. Uh, You said something there. Um, If you don't struggle with something, you don't have to learn about it. Uh, I think this is uh, really helpful for me and our listeners in that Like there's, there is a stigma with struggling, especially when it's tied to our sexuality or our relationships Mm -hmm. that uh, we tend to, we tend to maybe take what's normal from uh, rom-coms or whatever else, you know, that we're absorbing (laughs) because we don't, uh, we know we're not all married to pediatricians and we don't all just have these casual conversations at game night about how our sex life is with people. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of shame and a lot of failure and a lot of perhaps not measuring up. And so I think it's, I don't know, it's freeing for me to hear you say, uh, I became I became more knowledgeable about this because I stunk at it for a while.
4: Yeah, it was really difficult. And for me too, maybe we'll get into this later, but sexual pain was a large part of my story, which we get into in the book as well, because that's not talked about in the Christian community, even though we have twice the rates of it as the general population. Um, and so it was just learning mm. about things that books didn't prepare me for and also seeing how books had messed me up, (laughs) and having to overcome all of that. So for the last, you know, 13, 14 years, I've been trying to learn more in this area, overcome a lot of the stereotypes that are often given out as advice, and find, you know, what does a cross-centered sex life look like? You know, what does does sex really look like in the light of the cross? Because we talk about sex in weird ways in the church, and we don't think of Jesus and sex in the same sentence very often. but He created it. And if He is supposed to be Lord, then what does that look like? And so, as I've been trying to work through that, I've just been noticing a lot of the toxicity and the way that we talk around this thing, these things.
3: Hmm. Sheila, can you talk a little bit just about you you said books messed you up. Um, and maybe even some Christian culture, I- I'm putting my own words to this, um, maybe things that you've experienced. But for me, I grew up in the purity culture, and I'm interested to hear like your thoughts of how that affects now adults and how they think about sex and um, intimacy.
4: Yeah, purity culture basically told a whole generation, slightly younger than me, so this would have been my daughter and my co-author, but told them, if you do everything right— and if you stay a virgin until you're married, then sex is going to be awesome. So it was a big bribe. You know, it was a threat. Don't have sex too early. <laughs> you don't have sex before you're married or else mm-hmm. you will lose your most precious treasure because your, your purity is based on your body and what you do with it. They forgot that our purity is actually based on what Jesus did with his body, but we'll leave that for a minute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they said, you know, once you get married, sex will be awesome. And that was the, the fruit, you know, that's, that was the, the carrot, <laughs> if you want to say it, like that they were trying to get people to do the right things with. And it just didn't work. And especially um, demonizing any kind of sexual feelings was a big part of that as well. Uh, so the whole idea mm-hmm. of lust, basically a whole generation of boys were told, if you feel any kind of sexual attraction, you are already lusting. Like you have already committed a sin. Once you feel sexual attraction, you will be tempted to lust. Once you're tempted to lust, all kinds of bad things will happen. So the best thing for you to do is to never, ever look. And so all kinds of boys grew up feeling such tremendous shame just for being male. (laughs) And they were taught that the only way to fight that is to never look at girls and to bounce your eyes. And so women became objects like in our in our attempts to be pure and to treat women honorably we ended up dehumanizing them and objectifying them by saying that you need to bounce mm-hmm. your eyes or else you will lust and so even in the process of bouncing your eyes you are already seeing her as a sexual being and as only a sexual being you know jesus did not avoid looking yes. at women jesus chose to actually see women. And yet our rhetoric Mm. in the Christian church has been don't look at women.
3: Yeah. So tell us, teach us, (laughs) help us. Um, What does it look like to kind of come from that perspective, right? And, and, And I think within Christian culture, it wasn't just the purity culture. Even within churches today, it's just not talked about. It's not something that we wrestle with. It's not something that we're vulnerable and honest about. So help us understand what does it look like? I mean, you wrote this book, The Great Sex Rescue. I would love Mm -hmm. to hear um, how do you help create a culture and even Mm -hmm. or even just in a conversation, right? I find myself as a pastor sitting with people often where there's brokenness here. Uh, What would you say to them if you're sitting across the table with a cup of coffee in your hand?
4: We need to get back to what sex was supposed to be. And in the Bible, sex is always mutual. That's the point of the 1 Corinthians 7 passage, the do not deprive passage we talk about all the time. Everything the husband has, the wife has too. It's So sex is completely mutual. Hmm. It's completely intimate. We know that from Genesis 4, Adam knew his wife. You know, it's a deep knowing. And it's intensely pleasurable which we know from um, all of Song of Solomon, right? It's mutual, it's intimate, and it's pleasurable. And yet the way that the church has talked about sex has not tended to be with those three words. We have tended to see sex more as, well, even Emerson Egridge, for instance, um, says that a husband uh, needs physical release through sexual intimacy, and that is the purpose of sex. So sex is almost seen as something utilitarian, or something transactional. Women, you give him sex so that he'll give you Mm. what you really need, which is affection. So sex is seen as something which is for men. And that's not the way the Bible sees it. So what we did, um, you know, I had been teaching about sex for years. I created all this great content. I have my Bare Marriage podcast, my blog. I have courses and orgasm course, everything. And people were still having the same issues. And we realized that there's something... Mm wrong with our foundation. And so we actually did the largest survey that's ever been done of Christian women's sexual and marital satisfaction. We, we surveyed 20,000 women. It was a long survey, like 130 questions minimum, um, took about 25 minutes like this. They gave us a lot of their time to look at which evangelical teachings are correlated with negative marital and sexual outcomes for women, especially. And we found that a lot of the teachings that are the most common in our evangelical bestsellers really wreck stuff. And we simply have to change the conversation if we're going to get back to what God really wanted.
3: Mm. Yeah, So good. So I hear you kind of saying, you know, it, mutuality, intimacy, pleasure. Um, and I think we've forgotten to teach. We've forgotten ourselves, but we've forgotten to also teach the next generation that it's good. You know, like when I think about... Even at the very beginning in Genesis, you know, God created it and it was good, Tove, That whole idea of, um, I don't think kids growing up in the church and adults understand that. They think of it as a duty. They think of it as, you know, fill in the blank. But they're not seeing it as really good. And they've lost hope that it even can be.
4: Mm-hmm, but I think that's also because we've been taught that it's a duty especially women. We looked at the top yeah. 10, um, marriage bestsellers and, uh, the six most iconic sex books. Now three of our marriage bestsellers we excluded because they didn't talk about sex. So we looked at 13 evangelical books, um, in detail and the vast majority of them talked about sex as an obligation that she owed to her husband, um, that she mm-hmm. can't say no, like, yeah. We also looked at John Gottman's book, which is the top secular um, best selling marriage book, Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. And of the books that we looked at, only John Gottman explicitly talked about the concept of consent. So, Christian wow. marriage books.
2: That's, that's legit crazy, Sheila,
4: right? Yes. Isn't that
2: crazy to hear yourself yes. say that?
4: But yeah, that, only, like, only our secular well, book I, talked about I, consent. So wow.
2: when you say that, when you say that, I think of all these um, sex abuse scandals that have been breaking out in churches, right? With powerful men typically having affairs and or having sexually assaulting women, who uh, and, and I you know I'm thinking of like Bill Hybels and Ravi Zacharias, et cetera, et cetera. And and what you're saying is the, our best thinking from a white evangelical culture has been like low key (laughs) encouraging non consensual sex.
4: I'm not even sure how low key it would be. (laughs) Um, Like um, (laughs) let me put one disclaimer in and then I want to tell you a story. The disclaimer would be boundaries in marriage, um, sacred marriage. They may not have talked about consent, but they certainly talked about times when a woman could and should say no. So they didn't talk about consent explicitly, but they did say that. So it's not that all of them never gave women a reason to say no. But Sheet Music, for instance, said if you're postpartum, if you're bleeding heavily, um, if you're simply not feeling your best, you can give him oral sex or a hand job when he feels like he's going to climb the wall. So if she's got a migraine Uh or if she's postpartum, she should be doing this. Like it's this kind of thinking that is over and over again in our books. Um, But let me tell you about Tim LaHaye and the act of marriage. Mm. He told a story about a young woman who's getting married. Are you ready? (laughs) And her aunt Matilda came to her and told her, you know, sex is awful. You're going to have to endure it. You're not going to like it. And Tim talked about how terrible it was that the aunt would wreck her niece's view of sex. And then he explains that on her wedding night, Aunt Matilda's husband raped her, held her down while she was kicking and screaming and raped her. And this happened throughout their marriage. And because of this, Matilda had never gotten a good view of sex. And so Aunt Matilda and her equally unhappy husband had never learned how great sex were. So he he called the rapist husband equally hmm. unhappy as the one he had raped. Yeah. And this was in the fourth edition that we read. So it had gone through four different editions and <gasps> nobody said, maybe we should take that anecdote out.
1: They had four chances.
2: Yeah, yeah I, I want to apologize yeah. for laughing there. It's not funny. I'm, I'm uh, exasperated yeah. and kind of beside myself.
1: This episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast is brought to you in part by Respero. Respero is a nonprofit organization that trains people to become lay counselors. To participate, you join a cohort Led by Respero founder Joe Bishop, and participate in two courses. Respero seeks to bring hope and healing to a broken people through life giving conversations. If you're interested, check out the first course, which is called Understanding People on the Respero website. And if becoming a counselor isn't for you, consider the courses and lessons that Respero offers. Courses like Understanding Yourself will help you dive deep and understand what makes you tick. And then other lessons like codependency, grief, anxiety, and spiritual abuse can help provide guidance and solutions for tricky situations. If you're interested in learning more about how to be a Respero counselor or taking a course, check out the website at Respero.org. That's R-E-S-P-E-R-O dot You can also find them on social media at Respero Restoring Hope. We hope that you'll join with Respero in its mission to bring healing conversations and hope to local communities across the country.
2: These are good people.
1: They are good people. Yep. And they are sponsoring our podcast for a few episodes, and so we're grateful for that as well. We've grateful poked around a, with them.
2: a few of their courses, look, taking a look. Mm-hmm. Taking a look at the courses, yeah. We've peeped the courses and their qualities. Mm-hmm. This is great stuff. And a lot of what they do aligns very closely with the gra- what Gravity's doing. So yes. if you're... If what we do on this podcast, maybe you've been through the Gravity Leadership Academy, if that appeals to you as well, check them out.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Gravity Leadership Academy, our 10-month online training intensive for Christian leaders who want to root their life and leadership in God's love and bring lasting transformation to their culture. In Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you so you can participate more fully in God's life and mission and open up space for those around you to do so, too. We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com academy. So what what I hear you
2: saying is like these sexual abuse things that are breaking out in our churches, these aren't bugs in the operating system. These are more like maybe a result of what we've been doing.
4: Yeah. Well, every man's battle. Here's another good example. Um, So in the every man's battle philosophy, the way that you handle lust is you take all of your sexual energy and you transfer it onto your wife. So it says when you might have been going to her for five bowls of sexual gratification a week, once you transfer all your sexual energy onto her and you stop lust, now you're coming at her for 10 bowls of sexual gratification a week. And she will find this vaguely pleasant, <laughs> which is like kind of funny, like shows they Vagal. have no idea. what wow. think. Great. But then, but then what they say is, You know, once he he directed to women, it says, once he quits cold turkey, be like a merciful vial of methadone for him. So he tell, they tell wives twice that they are the methadone for their husband's porn addictions. And mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so the way that he stops watching porn is by using you again, it, it, it's almost like they're, they're equating male sexuality with the objectification of women. And it seems like the goal is yes. instead of objectifying all women, I will objectify just one for the rest of my life.
1: Oh, yes. That's <laughs> a really, really succinct and devastating way of putting it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah that there's even talking about it like as bowls, right It's like this this unit uh of consumption um that that exists inside the man um rather than what you said earlier, intimacy, mutuality, you know pleasure um I wonder if you can talk about and I, I think I may have seen this maybe on your website somewhere. Um, but I wonder if you can talk about the difference then, but like we've set up uh, talking about uh, especially male sexuality like in the church and all these resources and the books and everything that you have studied, talking about it as a need and mm-hmm. borderline addiction, right it's like mm-hmm. a it's like a bad thing almost automatically, mm-hmm. and nothing you can do about it, and you have this need. Um, Can you talk about the difference between thinking about male sexuality as a need and maybe thinking about our sexuality as a whole as a drive and how that could make a difference?
4: As soon as you make something into a need, what you say is that I'm kind of helpless. This is just my state. I have a need and I can't do anything Mm -hmm. about it. And so therefore it is up to you to do something about it. So it puts the responsibility onto someone else to fulfill it. And that is what women have been feeling. Now, I won't even get into the fact that in 20% of marriages, she's actually the one with the higher sex drive. In 20% of marriages, they have a shared sex drive. So it's not even an accurate way of looking at it, Um, looking at the different sexual drives. But one one of the things that we measured is what is the effect on women of believing I am obligated to give my husband sex when he wants it And when women believe that, it decreases their orgasm rates. It it increases the chance that they're going to have sex only because they feel like they have to instead of because they want to. It increases their chances of feeling used. Um, But the most significant finding there is that when women believe that they are obligated to give sex, that has almost the same statistical effect on the increase in experiencing vaginismus or primary sexual pain as prior abuse does. So let me just explain this for a minute because, yeah. Now, vaginismus, for uh, a lot of people don't even know that word. How many of you know erectile dysfunction? We all know that, right? We all know what erectile dysfunction means. Yes. Okay. Um, Vaginismus is more common among people in the 20s and 30s in the Christian world than erectile dysfunction. And yet most of us don't know what vaginismus Mm -hmm. is. Hmm. And it's a condition where the muscles of the vaginal wall contract so that penetration is very painful or difficult, if not impossible. About 22% of our Christian women experience it, twice the rate of the general population, 7% to the extent that penetration is impossible. And Hmm. um, it's almost the same impact as being abused because when you're abused, Basically, what that tells you is you don't matter. Someone else feels they have the right to use you however they want, and your needs don't matter. And that's the same as the obligation Mm -hmm. sex message. It's saying you don't matter. And it's very destructive. And yet, love and respect tells women you're not allowed to say you're not allowed to deprive him unless you're praying or fasting you're not like you're both praying and fasting you're not allowed to say no to him um in multiple books give that same interpretation of first corinthians 7 you can't say no
2: okay i want to hit pause here this is uh, probably in 20 minutes more talk about sex than we've had in two years on this podcast. So <laughs> people might need to take a deep breath, pull over to the side of the road, get, uh, get a cup of coffee or something. Uh, Sheila, I um I read some of those books as a young Christian man. Before I became a Christian, I didn't really think about my sexuality, my sex drive. When I became a Christian, that's immediately all that was talked about to me. <laughs> and my sex drive and my... um. My inability to have self control over my body sexually was immediately like public enemy numero uno. And so I read these books that helped me try to control this untamable beast. And I developed sort of this modicum of self control that felt way better than feeling all this guilt for doing things that I couldn't, I felt like were out of my control. There may be people listening to this that. Uh, for as much damage as purity culture and a lot of these Christian sex books have done, they feel like it's been their only hope to hmm. not just be a complete, like, sin monster. Like, <laughs> speak mm-hmm. to us. Like, um, what what would you say—so, for instance, somebody who, who has lust problems or pornography problems or uh, maybe um, something like that, Disordered desire. When they hear a sex-positive kind of message, it freaks them out because they're like, "Oh no! If I start thinking about sex as something good, then it'll completely take over my life and ruin my life." What, what do you mm-hmm. say to that person? How do you, how do you help us?
4: Well, porn issues are different from lust issues. And I do, whenever I talk about porn, I do need to say this first and foremost, porn is the biggest driver of sex trafficking in the world. And when you watch porn, those are real people being abused. And so I I just, often when we think about porn, we think about it in in terms of the effects that it has on the user. We can never, ever forget the effect, the real victims of porn are the people in porn. And I just, I just want to make that clear. Um, But The problem with porn is really shame. And when people get addicted to porn, what's often happening is that porn allows you to feel strong without actually having to be strong, right? Porn allows you to feel like a man without having to have any real relationships as a man, (laughs) And so people take their woundedness, their brokenness, whatever, and they cover it up with pornography because it gives them this, this feeling like, I'm okay, I'm still strong, I'm big, you know, I'm all of these things. And it can't be fixed with just willpower. And that's what the majority of our books are telling us about lust and porn is you just need to try harder. No, what we need to do mm-hmm. is open up our shame and our brokenness to Jesus, and experience what real intimacy is. And real intimacy is allowing people into your woundedness. It's allowing people to see mm-hmm. and to admit, I don't know what I'm doing. I am really broken. I don't handle disappointment well. I'm scared of rejection. You know, and, and what often people have done is they have sexualized their pain. And so they turn to porn instead, um, and we aren't going to find healing from porn simply by telling women you need to have sex with your husbands more. Um, I remember there was a focus on the family show November of last year where one of the hosts said that maybe the reason men are turning to porn is because their wives aren't having enough sex. Um, but for men under the age of 40, the majority of porn habits predate the marriage. It has nothing to do with the wife. And the reason he's turning to porn is often not about sex. It may feel like it's about sex, but what's happened is he has sexualized his pain. He's sexualized his pain so that whenever he feels stressed, rejected, bored, whatever, it comes out as a sexual urge because he hasn't allowed himself to feel those other things. Hmm. And that's why a lot of these groups that just simply focus on more willpower don't work. It's not about willpower. It's about uncovering the woundedness we've been hiding from Jesus and really taking our brokenness to him.
1: Yeah, so it's not its not actually, there's this like huge sin monster underneath all of this. It's just that there's a, probably a lot of pain and there's mm-hmm. actually something you can do with that pain. Like th- there's <laughs> healing for that.
4: There is, and I'm not. I'm not saying it's not a sin. It is, but it's it's more nuanced than that. And especially if sure. if if a little boy yeah. was shown porn when he was 11 years old, that's traumatic. Like it actually is a form of trauma. And often yeah. porn use grows out of that trauma. <laughs> so we need to we need to have a much more nuanced conversation about porn. Um, and we need to stop telling women that if they don't have sex every 72 hours, their husbands will watch porn, which is what our books do. Um, you know, Kevin Lehman again tells women you need to give him a hand job during your period so that he doesn't watch porn. Um, In sheet music, like that's, that's just not a healthy message for anybody. And when women hear that message, again, Mm -hmm. sexual pain rates rise, orgasm rates fall, um, your trust in marriage is broken, your marital satisfaction falls. Like these are all really toxic things, but they are taught in a lot of our books. And we need to start asking like, why did these books get so popular when what they're saying doesn't work and they're not even based on real research?
2: You would think that'd you, be a question to ask, wouldn't you? That, that would that would be. Maybe 20 you know? years ago even. Yeah. Like, Christy, yeah. I see you trying I mean, to get in. What, what's what's bumping around?
3: It's just wild. I feel like I have all these emotions that are coming up. <laughs> so go ahead. Go ahead.
4: <laughs> no, it's just uh, one of the biggest parts of our book, The Great Sex Rescue, is all of our footnotes. Okay. Like we reference so many studies. Mm. Kevin Lehman in Sheet Music references articles from Red Book Magazine. Like, we have to do better than this. We have to do better than this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, they're, we've set the bar so low in evangelicalism. Yeah.
3: I am interested to hear. I have three boys, 13, 9, and 8, right? So they're, I'm just interested to hear, what do you say to parents as they're raising their kids? And, and I have two girls that are 11 and, and 12, but... What do you say to your to your kids? How do you help create a, a, a healthy view? Um, and <laughs> I feel like I just need to save money so they can go to counseling, right? Like I think I've already messed them up. <laughs> and so I just am interested in like give me a little hope. Like as a mom, how do you help mm-hmm. direct your kids to have a healthy view of sex so that
4: when they get married, it's not the, mm-hmm. these lies that they believed we just need to get out of the men, the entitlement mentality because a lot of boys are raised with the entitled like when you when you get married you will get sex she needs to give it to you and then girls are raised with the um, duty mentality and none of that works but let me give you an example with boys yoga pants okay everyone is all in a tizzy about yoga pants right you can't girls can't wear yoga pants it will make boys lust. Um, if you're sitting, I I read a story in a blog post once. Um, I don't remember who it was now, but this woman was there with her teenage boys and there were two girls in yoga pants in the pews in front of her. And so she very righteously stood up and took her boys and moved them several pews ahead so that they wouldn't be staring at these yoga pants all through the service. And she was talking about how she was protecting their purity. What she told her boys is you won't be able to control yourself around girls with yoga pants. Mm. And I'm expecting you to lust. You know, and what if our message was just, yeah, you know, sexual attraction's normal. You're going to have sexual feelings. That's not a problem. You know, just remember that it's what you do with them that matters. And when you see a girl that you find really sexually attractive, just remember, hey, she's not for you right now. And so let's think about how we can show her love and friendship and just appreciate her as a person. And just don't be weird about it. Let's just (laughs) stop being weird about all this stuff (laughs) and just start treating people like real people. Because I think that we're making boys feel so guilty for having sexual feelings. And by the way, girls do as well. That's the missing piece of this conversation is increasingly research is finding that girls are just as visual. They're just visual about slightly different things. And so we assume they're not visual because they're not quite as into porn, you know, but if she sees a fireman carrying out a burning baby and the fireman rips off his shirt to put around the burning baby, like she's going to be just as turned on as he is watching (laughs) porn. Like chances are. Okay. And so women are just as visual. It's just about different things. Um, And the same parts of our brain light up the same, you know, everything. And so I think it's just important that we stop being weird. And we stop expecting that all boys can't treat women with respect. Uh, someone who's very close to me. Um, Amen. He's now he's now in his mid twenties, and when he went to youth group, he was a great guy as a teen. Like respected girls, um, respected women, just an all around great guy. And youth group was all about how we know you're going to want to watch porn. Don't watch porn. It's a terrible thing. You'll get addicted. It's just so, so appealing and everybody wants to watch porn and it'll suck you in. Don't do it. And so he's hearing this message for years and he's like, what's wrong with me that I don't want to watch porn. So he starts watching porn, you know, watches it for two years and then starts to realize it's impacting how he sees girls and he doesn't want that in his life. And so he quits. And he's back to being all respectful again. But he never would have turned to porn in the first place if youth group had not told him, all guys do this. Like real men watch porn. And that's the conversation that we've had in the church is real men lust. You know, masculinity and lust Mm. are equated. And so then if you're a guy and you're deliberately not lusting because you're deliberately treating women well, you feel like you're not a real man. And that's a problem.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Sheila. Yeah. I remember. I remember in high school. Um, I remember in high school feeling shame every time I asked my girlfriend if I could kiss her. Mm-hmm. I remember distinctly feeling like a real man wouldn't have to ask; he would just he would just take that kiss.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And 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 I asked my girlfriend of three years like every time I kissed her. And I think I did it out of insecurity or whatever. I had no idea that I was like actually, uh, you know, on the front uh, end of the consent wave. But I, I just want to say, like, I I felt tons of shame because I knew that I wasn't living up to some kind of masculine standard hmm. that existed outside of me. I felt deficient. I guess I could say.
4: Yeah. And I think that ne- that is a conversation that needs to stop. We need to stop assuming all men struggle with lust it's every man's battle. And one of the things we do in the books is we, we take these things that we teach and we try to reframe them. So for instance, instead of saying all men struggle with lust, it's every man's battle. We can say many people struggle with lust, often men more than women, but not always many women struggle too. But it is a struggle that you can overcome And with the Holy Spirit in you, you can learn to overcome this. And the way that we overcome it is by treating other people as whole people made in the image of God and relating to them as image bearers rather than just as bodies. Yes. Yes. Mm. Yes.
2: This is, we've talked about this before, and I want to maybe pivot in our last minutes with you here to, this matters not only in our marriages as parents um, with our partners, But also in church relationships, you know, we're in small groups with members of the opposite sex. Many of us are, uh, Chrissy's a pastor, she serves alongside men, Uh, Ben and I are pastors, we serve alongside women in leadership, and one of the things I've noticed is that, like, Christians are, okay, this might sound pejorative, but I feel like we are some of the worst people to look to on how to have friendships with people of the opposite sex, like, We've got all kinds of rules that govern that. We, we're, we're so scared about it. Or like, uh, you know, like it's part of this looking at, you know, uh, a guy looking at a woman as like an object of uh, temptation and women looking at men as oh, they're just lust monsters and they just want whatever. What, like how do give us a picture of what is this, the stuff you're talking about, what does it do to how we live alongside of each other as just humans? Like that last thing you said, like seeing each other as not bouncing our eyes, but actually seeing the image of God. How does that change the way that we are co-workers and friends?
4: hmm We did a follow-up survey. So it wasn't part of our main survey for our book, but I asked, I asked women afterwards, where have you felt more sexually harassed at the sexual workplace at the secular workplace or at church? And 70% of women said at church. And then I asked them another question. Has, ha, have you ever had the experience of men refusing to talk to you or look at you at church? And again, over 70% said yes. And many shared their stories. And like one woman said, I'll be standing beside my husband and I serve on a worship team. And the leader of the worship coordinator will come up and will start talking to my husband about the music set for next week. And then my husband will ask me the question and then I'll reply. And then he'll reply to my husband again and he won't look at me. And other women will talk about how, you know, they're walking in this hall in church, and then they say hi to someone, and the person looks at the wall and walks by them. And this is really common. Many, many women have this experience of just being ignored, like deliberately ignored. Like, I can't look at you because you are an object of temptation. And it's so, it's very invisible. It makes women feel like there's something wrong with me like men think they're doing it to be honorable I I honestly believe they do Um, but what they don't realize is that the message that sends to a woman is you are dangerous you're dangerous to me and that's not a good message I mean if can I can I tell a bible story that maybe can bring this home because I love this is one of my favorite stories but all right if you think If you think about the story of Hagar, you know, here Hagar is and she's Sarah's maidservant and Sarah's not getting pregnant even after this promise was made that Abraham and Sarah would have a child. And so they arranged for Hagar to have a child instead. I don't think she consented. There's no way she could have consented. I mean, even if she said, okay, like there was a power relationship there. So that was sexual abuse. So they used Hagar. And then when Sarah does get pregnant, now Sarah, now Hagar and Ishmael are threats to the child of the promise. Mm-hmm. And so they send Hagar away, and she's in the desert with her son, and God shows up in a big, powerful way. And Hagar is the first person who is given the privilege of naming God in Scripture. And Hagar calls God the God who sees me. And I believe that God sees women, and he sees what has been done to women, and he sees what women have gone through with all of these terrible messages and all of these books. And he also sees the men who have been made to feel shame they were never meant to feel. And I believe that God is shaking the evangelical church right now and is wanting us to get back to health and away from a lot of this really toxic teaching. Um, and so that really is my prayer for the great sex rescue that we can find freedom. And if you've ever been hurt by any of these messages, please know they're not of God and that there is another way of seeing this because God wants us to experience real passion and real intimacy.
2: Amen. 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 Strike up the, strike up the band, take up an offering. <laughs> let's, let's go. Let's go get give some brunch. Yeah, give a benediction. Yeah, give a benediction. Uh, <laughs> Sheila, um, your book is called "The Great Sex Rescue." Uh, also, your website to love, honor, and vacuum.com. Uh, let me just say this: I want I want I want you to maybe talk about why people should listen to your podcast and go to your website. But your website has incredible resources. Really helpful. Articles um, and uh, podcasts, audio clips. Uh, Anyway, I highly recommend it. But anything else you want to plug before we sign off?
4: No, I just just hope that The Great Sex Rescue really starts a big movement in the church towards more health and towards more discernment. I never want to see bestsellers like this again Mm -hmm. sell millions and millions of copies by dehumanizing and objectifying women or by making men feel shame. We, the tagline that I would love to use for our book would be like healthy, evidence-based, biblical. Like from now on, when we're looking at at advice for relationships, we should be asking, not just is this biblical, but is this healthy and is it evidence-based? Because when you follow Jesus's teachings, you're not harmed. And yet when we follow a lot of the teachings in many of our bestsellers, Mm -hmm. people have been harmed. And so we need to stop only asking if it's biblical and also ask, is it evidence-based? Is it healthy? Because that will tell us if our interpretations are wrong. And I think a lot of our interpretations of how we see relationships and sex, et cetera, have been very wrong for a very long time.
2: Yes. Sheila, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for your work. Thank you for struggling and learning and not stopping with... uh, love and respect and whatever else you read that was rubbish uh, so thank you for your work <laughs> thanks for being with us today
4: thank you so much it's been great
0: thanks for joining us for this episode of the gravity leadership podcast our show is produced by ben sternke matt Tebby, and ben hardman aaron sternke does our mixing and mastering you can check out his work at AaronSternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich.